Hi everyone. Welcome to the third episode of the Women Startup Leader Series. In this episode, we have Silvana Kusinha as speaker and Nisha Rahman, CEO of Bangladesh Angels, as moderator. Excellent. Uh, so I'll just go ahead and introduce our speaker for today. Uh, Silvana Q. Sinha, founder, chairman, and CEO of Prava Health, is a Bangladeshi American lawyer and entrepreneur. Uh, Ms. Sinha built Prava Health from scratch after experiencing the challenges facing the Bangladeshi healthcare system firsthand. Prava's brick and click healthcare platform integrates digital health and in clinic experiences convenient to where everyone lives, works, and clicks. Tripling growth every year since launch in 2018. Prava's tech forward model is designed to be efficient, accessible, and scalable across emerging markets where 85% of the world live. In 2020, Prava was recognized by Fast Company as a world-changing idea. Prava Health is a patient-driven company disrupting the standards of healthcare for Bangladesh's 170 million citizens. Uh, Silvana is a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a graduate of Columbia Law School, Harvard's Kennedy School, and Wellesley College. Silvana, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, and I think um, I, I always tell this to people because it's something I'm quite proud of. I think we were introduced by um, another powerhouse woman entrepreneur and investor, Kalsum Lakani, if I remember, uh, mm -hmm. back in 2016, right. yeah. I think. That's right. And also, I guess, I mean, she's Bangladeshi, but I guess Pakistani, Bangladeshi, American. Uh, but uh, yeah, and you know, we've been kind of grabbing coffee every so often for the last few years and just been very proud to um, associate with you and, and the journey you've been on with Prabhava. So thank you. Um, thank you for just, I guess, keeping me on, along on that journey as well. Uh, but yeah, happy to kind of do this session with you. And uh, I, I guess we'd like to kind of start this with everyone's origins because it's always kind of great to understand where you know everyone's coming from and, and the journey that kind of, I guess, places people on the path towards technology entrepreneurship. And so for the purpose of those who don't know you, you know, where did you grow up and, and what did you aspire to be when you were younger? Wow, really starting at the beginning, Nirjar, thank you. <laughs> um, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really, I mean, honestly, thank you for your kind words and, and generous introduction. I think um, it's just so great to have seen, I think together we've, we've observed the startup ecosystem evolve and mature and uh, really, really wonderful to see the work that you're doing to, to contribute to that continued maturing and uh, sophistication of the sector. Um, so I, um, I was born and raised in the United States. I grew up in Virginia and, um, you know, I guess it's, it's interesting and my, um, my interest in international development um, was really inspired by my visits to Bangladesh as a child. And, um, you know, I, I also, um, I was really interested in the US role in the 1971 war. Um, I was really struck. I mean, I think when you're an American and you visit Bangladesh, you are, as a child, you're very struck by the poverty. You've never seen anything like it, you know? And I think it was really um, impactful to me to just see how my family lived compared to how I saw, you know, so many of the masses living. And um, that really just got, you know, inspired my thinking. Um, and I ended up pursuing um, my education, as, as you mentioned, in, um, in law and international law and international development. Um, and I always, you know, have been really passionate about U.S. foreign policy, but um, also just about uh, the concept of development and, and, you know, what does it mean for we as humans to develop? What does it mean for economies to develop? Uh, and, um, 
and that has really been my kind of driving force of my of my life and my career. So I, I worked in international law, primarily at big law firms um, in New York uh, for many years, actually, and um, also worked um, for um, then Senator Obama in his campaign in 07 and 08 and have thought about joining the administration, but um, actually tend to think that that a lot of the people setting US foreign policy haven't spent enough time abroad. And I thought I didn't wanna be part of that problem. I also hadn't spent much time abroad at that point in my career. I lived and worked um, in India, you know, in Bangladesh uh, in various capacities, um, but never for more than a few months at a time, you know? And so I actually moved to Afghanistan at the end of 2008 with the World Bank. Um, I was at the bank for most of four years, primarily in Afghanistan, but also elsewhere in the Middle East and South Asia. Also, and uh, my last year in Afghanistan, I was at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and had some really incredible opportunities. Um, really grateful for them, to be honest. It taught me a lot about development. It taught me a lot about the public sector and the role of organizations like the World Bank. Um, and I mean, I, I had the opportunity. I used to brief the the um, U.S. ambassador every couple of weeks, and um, you know, really learned so much from those experiences. Um, but I kind of, you know, I didn't feel connected enough to the impact of the work that I was doing um, and to the people that, that I felt my work was really trying to impact. And um, also saw some inefficiencies in the public sector. I missed the accountability of the private sector. So I came back to New York, went back to big law and was kind of trying to figure out what am I gonna do for the rest of my life? And around this time was visiting Bangladesh for a family wedding when my mother was actually hospitalized in one of the top private hospitals in Bangladesh. And in fact, we were in the VIP suite um, and that experience was extremely eye-opening and disappointing. Um, I had heard about the challenges of the healthcare system in Bangladesh before, but I'd never experienced them firsthand until this moment. And that's really what got me thinking, you know, maybe there's something I can do in healthcare, even though I wasn't a healthcare person, I was someone who had observed Bangladesh's growth trajectory and noted that you know, despite the incredible progress that Bangladesh had made in during my lifetime, I mean, I was born in the late 70s. Um, it was, you know, no amount of money could still afford you access to excellent healthcare, And that was the kind of opportunity that I saw, the need that I saw. Um, and, you know, in terms of my background as a lawyer, I, I see access to quality healthcare as a human right, you know, and so um, all of these things kind of came together for me and inspired me to start thinking about what I might be able to do to create change in healthcare in Bangladesh. And, 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 and so, that, so that was the kind of impetus. And obviously you've got this really amazing kind of resume and, and career kind of spanning kind of big law, um, obviously uh, development as well, but you weren't necessarily in entrepreneurship. And, and so just curious, you know, as you kind of got started on that journey, where did you even start or, or how does one start, I guess, you know, how did mm -hmm. you go about validating the idea and whether or not this makes sense for you? Right. So I spent a year, I had the idea in August of 2014 and I spent really the next year, um, kind of went on a listening tour and um, spent a lot of time on the ground in Bangladesh, but also spent a lot of time all over the world um, meeting entrepreneurs, healthcare professionals, trying to get up to speed on healthcare and um, learn what I can about what was happening in other markets and what we could learn and bring back to Bangladesh. And even within Bangladesh, Bangladesh is doing better on social development indicators than any other country in the region. There's a lot that you can learn from innovation that's happened within Bangladesh to improve access to healthcare and, and to improve those outcomes. Um, 
I spent a lot of time talking to patients. So that was the beauty of it. Anybody I talked to in Bangladesh had either been a patient or had been through a healthcare experience with a loved one. And so I would, you know, I, I'm not kidding. I really would meet anyone who would talk to me and I would ask them, you know, what is it about, you know, the healthcare system that um, you think is challenged? And often I wouldn't have to open my mouth again for the next hour. Um, you know, people would just open up and I, I mean, I, I heard some really horrific stories um, and some good stories too. You know, I think Bangladeshi doctors get a really bad rep. I think that there are actually some really good doctors in Bangladesh, but I think there are some systemic challenges. And so just started to kind of dig in and learn, learn more about the problem and the scale of the problem. And it was much bigger and remains much bigger than anything that I as one entrepreneur can even, you know, fathom to solve. Um, but started to think about like, what were the points of inflection or, um, you know, what were the areas where I might be able to introduce something that could become part of the solution? And so initially I had an idea that quality diagnostics was the real challenge. Um, I will say around this time, and, you know, this is focused on technology around this time in the mid, you know, around 2014, 2015, everyone in the startup world globally was obsessed with building Uber of things. If you said you were building Uber of something, like you could get a meeting with any investor you wanted. And many people said to me, you know, why aren't you built? Why don't you just build Uber of for healthcare in Bangladesh? And what was very clear to me was that Uber of makes sense if you have underlying infrastructure. And because of my development background, I knew that more people in Bangladesh were dying due to lack of access to quality than lack of access alone. And in fact, one of my advisors often jokes, you know, uh, if you're, you know, in Bangladesh, it's hard to walk five steps without tripping over an NGO that's trying to give you healthcare services. But that doesn't mean necessarily that you're getting access to a doctor who knows what they're doing, that you're getting your labs tested at a lab that's actually running the tests properly, that you're getting drugs that are not counterfeit. And so for me, I, certainly there are business models to be built around connecting patients with doctors, labs, and, and medicine, but if without the underlying infrastructure existing, I wasn't really interested in building that business. Um, and so I realized that I had, to, I had to start with infrastructure. And so initially I had this idea that quality diagnostics was probably the issue. In fact, there is only one internationally accredited lab in Bangladesh, which is ICDDRB, which is a public health organization, internationally funded public health organization. But as I dug in more deeply and I talked to more and more patients, I just realized the problem was much bigger and deeper than, than anything that just labs could solve. And I actually realized that the Indian embassy in Dhaka was issuing thousands of medical visas every day. And there's actually, for anyone who's been to the, the embassy, there's a separate line for the medical visa. So I actually went, talked to patients and asked them, why are you leaving your country for healthcare? Because I knew the rich were traveling for healthcare, but I also knew that I kind of figured let them, you know, like it's almost like a bragging right to be able to say you went to Bangkok to get your diabetes test every three months. And um, I was really interested in the middle class and the middle class can often barely afford to make a foreign trip, but they're still doing it. And they're often, their first point of entry is, their first you know, stop is, is India, but they will go to Bangkok, Singapore and beyond if they can't, they'll stretch, any one of us will stretch our finances as far as we can to access excellent healthcare. And so um, talk to those people and ask them, you know, what, what is it about your healthcare system that's failing you? And across the board, none of them said anything about this issue of diagnostic error rates, you know, of labs that were doing poor quality tests. 
<clears throat> consistently, they said, the doctors don't spend any time with us. They don't smile. They don't even look at us in the eye. And they just don't trust the system. And in fact, the average amount of time doctors are spending with patients in Bangladesh is 48 seconds. And so that's where I got really excited about and attracted to the concept of building an integrated system that puts patients at the center of it. You know, there's so many systemic issues in the healthcare system in Bangladesh. Um, there are a lot of perverse incentives. Um, in addition to the lack of underlying quality, doctors are often, you know, encouraged and given targets and incentives to convert outpatients to inpatients, to order drugs, to order tests. Um, and so I thought, these are systemic issues and, and just building a lab isn't going to solve that. And so that's where I started thinking we're going to have to build the full stack where, you know, we're going to have to build, we're going to have to do the doctor's part and the labs and the drugs because, you know, 10 to 15% of drugs in the market are counterfeit. And so, um, so that's really where it all began. Um, I can't say I didn't have an opportunity to build a tiny prototype because building a lab is not an easy endeavor. Um, so my first pancake was a 10 story building in, in Bonani. So, so that's quite interesting, right? It's because um, it, it wasn't necessarily a supply and demand mismatch that might be mitigated through a marketplace model. It, it was the quality of supply period. Yeah, um, but, I do think there's also yeah. certainly a supply and demand issue. You, you know, absolutely. Mm -hmm. There's not enough doctors in Bangladesh. There's even fewer nurses and technicians than doctors in Bangladesh. Right. So there is a supply issue, but I think even within that, there's this quality, underlying quality issue um, that right. I wanted to try to solve first. Yeah, but, but also, as you mentioned it, like that gets quite daunting, doesn't it? Because it's not like you could go out and do a lean model of something, oh, yeah, like of a lab, you have kind of, kind of do it all. Uh, and I, I would imagine that's quite daunting also from a fundraising standpoint. Um, and so just curious about that aspect of it, you know, how, what kind of reception did you get um, in the early days, both from domestic sources and maybe international funders as well? So my um, theme of my entrepreneurial journey is talking to anyone, like literally meeting anyone who will talk to me. And I think that's how we met near York, you know? Um, and that is how I started to meet um, team members, um, actual employees who still work with me to this day. Um, that is how I started to meet advisors, and that's how I started to meet investors. You know, I'm I was meeting people. I was wanting to learn from people who were, were investing in healthcare. You know, um, I and 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 just starting to under you know starting to get to know people. And I'm I'm pretty honest about what my motivations are and what my values are. And I think that starts to attract the right kind of people back back to you. But very specifically to your point, certainly um, investors. Um, I'm sure we're wondering, you know, how I could possibly pull this off, um, given that I was a first time entrepreneur, I had never lived in Bangladesh before, but there are really, you know, impressive business models to be built around, uh, around lab diagnostics, for example, you know, and um, there are excellent comps in the region and just next door in India um, for, you know, large lab, lab diagnostics chains that have, um, that have really done very well. Um, the difference is that we didn't just do the lab diagnostics, we were also doing imaging, we're also doing procedures, we're also doing the family health piece and the pharmacy piece. But what's, what, what I got excited about, to be honest with you, is that there's, there's great comps for each of those individual businesses across the region and across the world. Um, 
it's my belief that our business is more valuable than the sum of its parts because we have all kinds of synergies within the model. Um, and we also, once we've acquired a patient, we have the opportunity to convert them across the different service lines. Um, but certainly it was very challenging in the early days with investors, but I think I spent, I think spending that year self-funding for most of it um, to really do my homework, to get really smart on um, what I was building. I, I spent several months building a financial model. I wrote a hundred page business plan, which I still re refer back to to this day. Um, just to remind myself of some of my original thinking and motivations um, and frameworks, some of which are still holding true, actually. Um, you know, I think doing that homework was such an important process for me personally, but also for me to be more prepared for those meetings so that, you know, people really could understand that I, I was, I met business, you know, I was really serious about what I had done. And I'd also started to collect uh, colleagues, team members, you know, um, that first deck that I had, I had four people on it, um, you know, and it was um, it was a, starting to be a group of really credible and impressive people who had all the skills that I didn't have. I'm not a doctor, you know, um, and so I had brought in a doctor, you know, brought in a senior immunologist from Harvard Medical School, you know, uh, someone who had run labs in, in Dhaka. Um, for 15 years of his career, um, someone, an IT professional who had been working in health tech as well. So it started to pull together these people as well who had the skills that I didn't have. And I think all of those things started to started to build my credibility with investors. But the hardest part was and continues to be Bangladesh, despite all of that. There are a lot of people who really do understand the model and believe in it and see the promise of big brands in the region like Apollo, you know, um, but may not still be comfortable investing in Bangladesh, which is a problem I know you're very familiar with. And so on the, the positive side, right, um, when, when somebody said yes to investing in, in Prava, particularly, say, in 2017, 18, what were those reasons? Um, and did it differ based on being Bangladeshi versus being international? So one of the things I'm so excited about, about what, you're, what you spend your time on, is that, it, well, most of my investor, most of the Bangladeshis that I approached were very skeptical. Um, and so I had a really hard time, to be honest, with most Bangladeshi expats. Um, locally, we did attract some interest and brought in a couple of investors, although our shareholding is uh, um, in Singapore. Um, so it needed to be someone who, who was a foreign citizen and could do that. But um, in our, the expats, especially the US-based ones, had been burned. Many of them had been burned by um, Bangladesh, you know, entrepreneurs trying to build businesses in Bangladesh. I had one person who said to me, look, I really think what you're doing is really interesting and I believe that you're gonna be able to pull it off. Um, I, I know you're not gonna run away with my money, you're an American lawyer, you know, but my wife won't let me invest in any more Bangladeshi entrepreneurs because the experience that two entrepreneurs had run away with his money and never done anything. So that was definitely challenging. Um, my lead investor is half Bangladeshi, half American um, technology entrepreneur. Um, and so I don't wanna say, you know, all negative things. It's, it, that was, you know, I think he really saw the opportunity and what he says to this day is, do you believe the middle-class of Bangladesh is growing? If so, you should invest in Prava. You know, like he, he really believes in the opportunity set and he believes in our ability to execute on it. Um, I think that the other investors that we've been able to attract are people, so there's people like General Petraeus, you know, the, the chairman of KKR's Global Institute and former director of the CIA. Um, he, you know, is really intrigued by the Bangladesh market. Um, and I think 
He also is, is the kind of person who responds really well to detailed planning, as you can imagine. And I think he responded really well to my detailed plans, um, ask extremely, extremely thoughtful and challenging questions. Um, and then there are others who are um, invested in healthcare globally, you know, and have built healthcare entrepreneurs, actually. The co-founder of Oak Street Health, which just IPO'd last, um, last August, in the US market, um, the founder of Iora Health, which was, to be honest, Iora was a huge inspiration to me and I mentioned it throughout my original business plan. Um, he also invested in his personal capacity, a Singapore-based um, healthcare entrepreneur is also invested. These are people who I think recognize that some of the things that, some of the products that we're offering are actually innovating at the edges of healthcare globally. And they're excited to see how those innovations can apply to a market like Bangladesh, how we can use those opportunities potentially to leapfrog the healthcare system in Bangladesh and, and avoid the mistakes, frankly, of some of the more developed economies of the world. So it's, it's a mix. To, I think different different investors are attracted to different pieces of it. Right. Uh, going back to, I think, the the kind of hybrid team approach, right? You mentioned kind of uh, these different doctors and others. Uh, so that was also quite intriguing to me as far as, you know, obviously a big part of building an early stage company or a company in general is culture. And so how did you kind of go, and in, in particular, you have a very unique vantage point, right? But how did you go to kind of go about building a unified culture across, you know, so many different cultures? Thank you. I love that question. I, I love that challenge, to be honest. I spend, it's one of the things I spend the most amount of time on um, operationally as CEO is this challenge of culture. Um, I think that, and you know, there's this magic that happens in the early days of founding a company when you're all sitting in the room, you all fit around a table, you know, and um, you're, you're building this, you're dreaming, really. You're dreaming and you're figuring out how you're gonna execute on that dream every day. Um, that, that magic becomes harder as you grow to, you know, we now have 350 people at Brava. Um, and so how do you create a coherent culture? Um, you know, and I think, how do you, you know, me as a Bangladeshi American, to be honest, I, I often admit, I don't know the heart of a middle-class Bangladeshi. I, I, I didn't grow up there, you know, um, and so, I think deferring deferring to the local culture while being informed by international inspirations, you know, and bringing to the table expertise, I think is really, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a tricky balance. One of the things that I do is I really try to connect every team member who joins the team to our mission. And I actually personally conduct hospitality training um, I conducted every couple of months and every single person who's joined the company um, until that time actually um, actually uh, is, is required to participate. In the early days, um, you know, like I, I still remember the very first one we did right before we launched, um, we had our soft launch in August of 2017 and it was, it was amazing, you know, and every single person is asked to speak, to introduce themselves and to say, you know, share a healthcare experience that you've had in your life. It can be positive, it can be negative. Inevitably, it's either extremely positive or extremely negative. And, um, and it's very personal, you know, I mean, any, any, any healthcare experience any one of us remembers is usually either very positive or very negative. And so, um, and it can be very emotional actually. And I'll, I'll never forget um, one, um, that first session that we had, there was a lab technician who shared a story with me that, still gives me chills, to be honest, when I think about it. He said, you know, 
I, he worked at a, he worked at a lab that also had a blood bank and he was, um, he was, you know, they're preparing some blood to be given for a HIV positive patient. And he, he noted that that, but the blood they were about to release was like a hep C positive patient, a hep C positive blood. And so he alerted his boss and he said, you know, we can't release this blood. We can't, this can't be used for transfusion. And um, they still wanted to release it. And so he called up the managing director, the owner of the company directly. And he said, we can't release this blood. And apparently the managing director of that company said, you know what, like it's for an HIV positive patient, that person is going to die anyway. So you should just release the blood. And I mean, and he quit, apparently he quit his job over that incident. And I mean, it's unconscionable, right? But unfortunately these, these things are happening all the time in Bangladesh um, because there is a lack of regulation um, and, and, and very little accountability due to the excess demand in the market. But it was amazing to hear that story, but also amazing that he was sharing it with us in a way, right? Cause he's putting me on notice, right? That he's gonna hold me accountable to that too. And I, I love that. I think we have to find, you have to find a way to connect every single team member to the mission that we're here to serve. And, um, and, and I think I, I, I love those sessions also because it's people from all walks of life in the same room. We have security guards, we have doctors, we have the lab techs, we have the T-boys. I remember one time the, there was a T-boy who had been serving me tea in our office for several weeks. And he shared, you know, I never, I always hated doctors because I used to, I, he had a, he was like 18 years old. He had chronic leg pain. And he said, I used to go see doctors and they would, they don't, like he said, you know, he said like people like us, they don't respect us. Doctors don't respect us. And, you know, he felt that his class of people were not given any respect by the doctors he'd interacted with. But he said, you know, but now my opinion of doctors is changing after working here at Prava. It was really touching. And um, he then got treated actually at Prava. Um, so I just think, you know, connecting, connecting every individual to, to the mission, which is higher and better than any one of us, but we have to continue to aspire to it every day. And I think um, we have defined values. We call them SMILE, S-M-I-L-E. Each letter stands for a different one of our values. S is for service. M is for my brava, the concept of ownership. Um, I is for integrity. L is for listening. And E is for excellence. And so, you know, we try to, um, we've taken inspiration actually from Disney. Um, there's a book called Disney Ran, if Disney ran your hospital nine and have things you do differently. And Disney, you know, you think of Disney as a place where the concept is show, but it's also about delivering, even at, at a Disney theme park, delivering an amazing experience. And so to think of healthcare as something where we're trying to deliver an amazing experience um, is actually quite analogous. And um, so, um, Disney has, you know, its set of values that it says, you know, use that for every employee. They say, use that when you're making any decision relating to uh, an experience you're having with a guest. And, and that's what we say to our employees too, is we don't, we try to, we try to stay away from scripts and, you know, mechanical ways of serving patients. We certainly have clinical protocols on the clinical side of things, but in terms of the actual like interactions with patients, we say, be informed by these values when you're interacting with patients. So the culture challenge is very real, especially when, as you mentioned, we do have a multicultural team and we need to have a multicultural team in order to build a world-class healthcare system. We had to borrow and bring the best people to the table from all over the world. Um, but I think it's, it's an exciting challenge and one that I think we have to treat with real seriousness and humility. 
that's on the internal side, right? When it comes to the stakeholders, um, what about, I guess the, uh, you know, we haven't talked a lot about the patients and, and the consumers and, and rightfully they might be very skeptical of a, of a new healthcare brand. They might have those experiences and they might be bringing those, I guess, heuristics to the table literally. Um, and so how did you go about kind of creating a, a brand uh, one, creating awareness for it, and, and second, making sure that that kind of sticks within uh, the, the populace, right, when it comes to adopting this new healthcare model and, and, and brand. So I, I, I don't know that we've done it yet, to be honest, but it's something we certainly, we strive to do every day is to earn the trust of our patients. And, um, you know, it's, it's just uh, always, you know, I think that the best moments are, are really like, you know, Julian shared at the beginning that he, he felt that he had a good experience at Bravo. That's, those are the best moments, you know. Um, but trust is earned one patient at a time, one interaction at a time. And um, I think in the very early days in terms of building the brand, we were quite active on social media and um, mostly, to be honest, through sharing curated content um, from WebMD and other credible resources, because there's so much misinformation in the market about um, how to manage your own health. I think in Bangladesh, people are often um, you know, driven by old family traditions, um, or, you know, bogus websites, frankly, or something their local pharmacist told them to do. And that, when you when we say local pharmacist in Dhaka, it doesn't mean someone who has a pharmacy degree, it means the guy behind the counter who may or may not have a high school degree, right? And so I think one of the things that's, that I always say is, you know, we're building a patient-centered healthcare system. And ultimately the healthcare system in Bangladesh and across Asia is very doctor-centric, right? But ultimately, it's our job as providers to empower patients to make better decisions about their health. It's really not, it's really not about us, right? And so for me, like initially, even before we launched, creating that awareness um, was, uh, was very important. Just generally posting like, okay, this is you know, a great resource you can turn to on how to get more iron in your diet, you know, or um, you know, a woman age 55 um, who's experiencing um, you know, osteoporosis, how do you deal with that? Basic things like that. So we really started out in a very basic um, way that, with that. But we also invested in, in design. You know, we really looked at applying human-centered design principles to every aspect of the patient experience in the early days. We had a long planning and gestation period. Um, you know, I started working on this in August of 2014, as I mentioned. I moved to Bangladesh in August of 2015 and hired my first employee in February of 2016. Um, and then we um, signed the lease for our first building in November of that year and had our soft launch in August of 2017. So, between February 2016 and hiring our first employee in August of 2017, we spent a lot of time planning, designing patient experiences, but also designing the brand, right? Like, what do we want the name of our company to be? What do we want it to mean? What do we want the colors to mean? Because I think that because our price point is fairly accessible, um, we wanted it to be very accessible to the middle class, not at the price of the highest end private facilities in the country. Um, but people in Bangladesh have a sense that if they're not paying a lot, maybe they're not getting a quality um, product. So for us, like investing in the brand was important to message the quality of our of our product. And to this day, I get very, I, I personally sign off on a lot of our social media, everything that we post. And if I see something that's off center or we're not perfect, but those little things I think do add up to a to an individual consumer's perception of um, of the brand, you know, I think every little, every detail really does count. And um, so I think that that is another really important piece. 
I mean, I think one thing that kind of sticks out, right, in, in the first part of the conversation is you're clearly a very mission-driven company, uh, very much one focused on kind of process excellence, um, maybe augmented by technology, et cetera. Um, the others in the market, maybe less so, uh, quite commercially driven, of course, uh, part of some major conglomerates as well. How did you, how did the competition kind of react uh, when you came into the scene? So initially they didn't react at all, which um, I think I was wildly underestimated, which I'm really glad for actually, um, because I think if people underestimate you, then you can only exceed their expectations. Um, and, you know, we kind of flew under the radar and people were like, you know, what are, they're never going to be able to pull this off. Um, people told people who joined my team, like you shouldn't join your team because, you know, it's probably not going to work out. Um, but then slowly, you know, I think um, we've seen, um, we've seen some, you know, aspects of our products, um, of our products copied in the market. Um, we have seen aspects of um, our branding copied in the market. Actually, one of the brands started to copy some of our, our uh, cartoon characters, which, which we launched in 2018. Um, little things like that. Um, I also have heard actually that some of, you know, that there's, there's a company that's trying to build a Brava style business um, in Bangladesh. And so we'll, you know, we'll, I think competition is good for the market. I welcome that challenge actually. It, it also, you know, keeps us on our toes. I think we have to take, we have to take competition very seriously. Um, but interestingly, I will say in the last year, I think our brand um, has, I'm, I'm proud that I think we've been able to really, you know, serve the country during the public health crisis that we're facing. And um, I think we've heard more of our competitors who maybe didn't consider us competitors before, you know, saying bad things about us in the market. But I think those things are very normal and, um, you know, part of, part of doing business. So I think that we are now considered probably more of a force in the market and, and taken more seriously, but it took time to get to that point. And, and that's a great segue, right, to, um, I guess, the last 13, 14 months, and particularly this kind of pandemic and, and what's been happening on the ground in Bangladesh. Um, you know, reading from your TechCrunch kind of press release about the, the Series B, um, you know, you processed, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's higher now, but processed 75,000 COVID-19 tests in-house. Uh, so that's one metric, I suppose. But, you know, how did COVID help you as a business? And, and in what ways, I think, you know, has it made things difficult uh, for you as well as a, as a young company? Um, so it helped us to become smarter, I think. Um, I will be honest with you, you know, I'm, I'm very open about this fact. When COVID first hit, we, um, we didn't have much money in the bank. We were expecting to close around and it didn't happen. Um, and so we had to actually, we had to furlough about 40% of staff. Um, that was a very dark moment for me personally, probably one of the darkest moments of my career to have to do that in a moment when the global economy was so insecure, but we had to do it to keep the business alive. Um, and, um, and we had to figure out how to become more efficient. We had to immediately, we rolled out telemedicine in March of 2020. We were the first private provider to partner with the government on telemedicine. Um, we rolled out e-pharma services in early May. And the big game changer for us was that we were the first private lab to get approval to do COVID testing in May of 2020. And that frankly came as a big surprise 
to even me um, because we were a relative nobody in the market. But I think the government um, believed in the quality of our lab. I'd like to believe that's the reason that they did that. Um, and they trusted us, I think, with, uh, with the responsibility of, of doing COVID testing. And, um, and it frankly was free advertising for us as well, because suddenly, you know, the evening news was reporting, like, this is where you can have your COVID testing done. And, and we were being mentioned. And so it was, um, I think suddenly many, many more people knew about Brava than before. Um, but we also weren't prepared, you know, like many healthcare systems in the world. I, I, I won't say that we're the only one. I think, you know, you hear, I hear this from colleagues all over the world that healthcare systems were overloaded and they weren't really ready. And we weren't, you know, we went from getting a few hundred calls a day to our call center to literally getting thousands. And many people weren't getting through. We were letting people down and it was heartbreaking. Um, but it forced us to get our house in order. And um, it forced us, it, it forced us to see the gaps in our internal processes and to figure out how to start fixing them. And so I'm actually really proud during the recent surge that we've seen. Um, so our um, complaints, our service quality, which is measured by complaints uh, divided by total services rendered, um, our volumes doubled between January and March of 2021, our service quality stayed flat. Um, and so I think, you know, we've learned so much from these pressure tests um, that we've been given. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. I think the other big thing is that it really accelerated our digital product launch, right? We always had a vision for a brick and click healthcare model. We did roll out the first patient app in the country in 2018, um, but we hadn't really planned to roll out these other products and actually it was in the roadmap for 2021. But COVID forced the issue of us rolling out all these other digital products. And, and we built a tool for remote management of COVID that's shown quite a bit of success in reducing hospitalization rates. And so all of these things um, together, you know, I, I'm, I think we're really grateful for the opportunity that it's given us um, and, and, and forced us to mature a lot as a business and as a team. So that's, so that's, um, so that, you know, you mentioned kind of like the telemedicine portal, you mentioned the, uh, the COVID management tool. I mean, from your experience and from your team's experience, you know, beforehand, before, you know, what happened uh, with the pandemic, what were the, the hurdles to kind of adoption when it come to, came to digital tools? Was it more from the patient side? Was it from the provider side? You know, what, what were some, I guess, bottlenecks and in, in kind of stop preventing mass adoption of these types of, I guess, interfaces? Mm -hmm. A lot of doctors in Bangladesh are not necessarily that tech savvy, I think. Um, so I definitely think there is a resistance there, but Brava has attracted doctors who are really excited to be engaging with um, some of the latest technologies in digital health. So they're probably, I would say, definitely above average in terms of technology adoption. Um, patients, you know, I think it's, it takes time for patients, to, for consumers to change behaviors, right? And the only way and reason that consumers change behaviors is if you create something for them that's 10 times better than what they were doing before, right? And so I think that um, pre-COVID, there was a resistance to seeing a doctor over the phone uh, or over, you know, the computer, but, um, and it, but it also, and it also takes 21 days to form a new habit, right? And so I think um, there was a resistance, there was a trust gap, um, there was a sense that it wasn't 10 times better, that I as the patient want to be seen and heard in person to have confidence that the doctor is really understanding me. But I think now, you know, we've had, we've, we were forced to adapt behavior and forced to get accustomed to a new way of engaging with healthcare. And so, um, you know, the jury's still out, but um, I think the market globally and uh, within Bangladesh remains pretty bullish that I think telemedicine and, and, and use of digital 
digital health products is here to stay. Um, now, I, I will say we see upticks when there are surges. When the surges pass, people still prefer coming to the doctor, but they're still also accessing telemedicine, just not at the same rates as they are during the surges. And so I'm curious also about the, I mean, beyond the pandemic, right? Uh, also, but just the flow or, or the customer journey of when should someone or when is someone going to be pushed towards telemedicine versus going to one of your satellite clinics uh, within your network versus coming to the, the flagship clinic, right? Or, or the hubs, uh, mm -hmm. you know, what determines that kind of, I guess, uh, the process of, go, you know, yeah, going up the chain? Right. So it really depends. I would say it really depends on the particular patient. So um, we do recommend, particularly right now, that the first point of entry is a telemedicine consultation. Um, and then the doctor will assess that, okay, this is a patient I need to see, I need to examine. Um, or they might say, you know, um, I'll just give this, you know, there's a little girl with a rash, I'll give her some medication, we'll have the um, medication delivered to her. Um, and probably that'll be okay, but follow up with me in a few days. You know, it really depends on the particular patient. And there are protocols in place for when those escalations should take place for some of the most common presentations. But um, I don't have a like very easy answer for you on that. In terms of the hub and spoke model, um, the you should be able to do most anything at a spoke. Um, the only thing you would get referred to a hub for um, so the spokes are the smaller clinics. They look like a primary care physician's office uh, or a GP's office in the UK that you might be familiar with, three to 5,000 square feet. You can do most anything there. You can draw blood, you can do a basic x-ray. For anything more advanced, like maybe um, a cardiac procedure um, or other intervention or seeing another specialist, you would get referred to the hub. Got it. Uh, and also going back to that point about making it, you know, 21 days to form a habit, uh, and, you know, one of those being maybe being a, a, a Prava consumer, um, how do you turn these sorts of, you know, somebody who might have, um, you know, heard about you through the, the media coverage or et cetera, uh, and how, yeah, how do you turn these into kind of recurring customers over time? What, what sort of things have, have you guys done or tried? The best thing we can do is create an excellent patient experience. I think that's the number one way we improve customer retention. Um, is, you know, create an experience that is so wonderful that patients want to come back. Um, and that's powerful both um, for the purposes of retaining the patient, but also word of mouth marketing has been our most powerful tool. Um, and, you know, I think that's true anywhere in the world in healthcare. Um, the best way you decide to access a healthcare provider is through a personal referral. Um, that said, we are getting smarter on, um, on understanding our patient journeys and looking at different segments of, of the patient populations. Um, chronic disease sufferers, for example, um, are patients that we want to be able to serve over time, particularly during a pandemic when many chronic disease sufferers have been ignoring their health um, and avoiding going to the doctor. We want to make sure that we're really there for those patients. Um, but, you know, I think the thing that we really try to think about is just you know, how do we create a holistic experience also, not just for you, but for your whole family, so that um, once you come in, you also bring your parents and your in-laws and your husband and your kids and your cousin and your friend, you know, um, and I really, I think the best way to do that is, is really to create this excellent experience, but also we do try to, you know, we do try to share curated content, like I said, um, and targeted emails, you know, to patients to say, look, like we're offering this particular service. Um, we do a lot of email and, and social media marketing, which is very common in Bangladesh, as you know.
Another question I had was, um, I think most healthcare spending in Bangladesh is out of pocket. Um, and so when it comes to, I guess, the immaturity of the healthcare insurance market, you know, payment mechanisms, has that been a challenge for you guys? And, and does that entail creating products on that end as well when it comes to the financial side? Absolutely. So we actually have rolled out um, annual membership plans, which I think you can um, uh, you can see memberships uh, at the top of the, the website there. Um, and I, I'd love it if you guys would check it out. It's the first product of its kind really in the market, um, whereby you pay a flat rate for unlimited access to services. And so the price point starts at 3,500 DACA and goes, which is about 40 US dollars and goes all the way up uh, goes all the way up to um, about 400 US dollars. Um, and the most expensive plans are for sufferers of chronic disease who need more testing. Um, but even the cheapest plan allows you to come in to see a doctor every single day. And this is really our bet on value-based care. You know, um, this is how we're trying to align our incentives with our patients. So we're saying, look, if you're sick, you can keep coming in and we'll treat you and we'll lose money on that. But our goal is to align our incentives with yours and really keep you healthy. And so um, that's one of the one of the products that we've offered to really make the financing aspect easier. It's still challenging, and we are in conversations with mobile money providers like Bcash um, and others to try to figure out if we can allow patients to do micropayments over time because the upfront cost of you know thirty five hundred to thirty thousand DACA can be very high. So um, we still have some work that we're doing in that area. Um, there is only you know, less than 1% of the population that has health insurance. And all of that really is primarily hospital care. So we're the first to step in and try to, um, try to offer products that cover the outpatient experience. I know we've got about five minutes left. Uh, you know, I think there are a couple of time. questions that came through yeah, actually in the chat. Exactly. So let's go to those questions. Uh, so from Rashad Pai in New York also, um, how did you deal with and overcome the cultural and gender challenges being in Bangladesh as a Bangladesh American and woman operating in a male dominated society? Um, and were you familiar with operating in Bangladesh before jumping in head first? Um, so I'll answer the last question first. No, I wasn't familiar with operating in Bangladesh. I, um, I had worked in emerging and frontier markets for most of my career, but um, I had never worked in Bangladesh before. My family does have a business in Bangladesh in the pharmaceutical industry, um, but I, had, I was not involved with that. Um, I knew that there were risks that I would have to navigate and you know relationships with the government that I would have to navigate, et cetera. Um, but uh, I did not have that ex direct experience, but I will tell you, I did have some, I took some comfort in the fact that I had family that was operating a successful business in the country that I could call on if I needed to. Um, fortunately, I haven't had to, to use those contexts, but I think it gave me, gave me more confidence, I think, to, to take this step. Um, and uh, in terms of cultural and gender challenges, um, you know, I think that those challenges are real. I think that um, they're not something to be underestimated. But I also think, you know, um, there's nothing, not much I can do about them, right? Like I, I'm, I wasn't born and raised in Bangladesh. I am a woman. Um, I'm an unmarried woman of a certain age, which is quite uncommon in Bangladesh as well. Um, so I think that there's, I'm sure there's um, a lot that um, I have to face, but I think the best way I know how to deal with that is just to be myself and just try to earn trust and build relationships one, you know, one person at a time, one organization at a time. And um, I, I will say that I do sometimes feel that 
the gender issue is less pronounced in Bangladesh than it is in, in New York. Um, so I sometimes think that socioeconomic status is more, is, is a bigger challenge to overcome in Bangladesh than gender. Um, and I, I think it's no coincidence, frankly, that the women entrepreneurs who are prominent in Bangladeshi society come from a certain socioeconomic class. Um, so that's the next hurdle I think that we have to face. Thank you so much for, for taking the time today and, uh, and looking forward to doing this again. Thank you. No, really great to meet everyone. And um, thank you for taking an interest in, in what we're building. And anyone who's a Brava patient, please give us feedback. We take it very seriously. So positive or negative, you can email bravalistens at bravahealth.com. Um, and the management team actually reviews it every week. So that's the last point I'll end on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sobana. Thanks to everyone.